From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. Portland has seen more than three months of demonstrations since the killing of George Floyd. The protests have at times involved destruction and violence and resulted in a shooting homicide this past weekend. Amid all this, there's also a longtime activist quietly keeping the focus on the Black Lives Matter movement and making a dramatic positive difference in the lives of the black community. When Oregon handed out $35 million to those in need last month, people lined up around the block at credit unions waiting for hours. One time, $500 checks were gone in 72 hours. Many left empty handed and shaking their heads at the bureaucracy. Local activist Cameron Witten is trying to change things, cutting through red tape and making local and national headlines with his Black Resilience Fund. The Washington Post highlighted how he's helping the black community in Portland with no strings attached. The Black Resilience Fund has raised more than one and a half million dollars to assist people who are struggling. We'll hear from Witten about what's next for the fund. And he weighs in on the more than three months of nightly demonstrations in Portland since the killing of George Floyd. And later in the show, mail-in voting. Reed College professor Paul Gronke joins us to shed light on how it might work nationwide in November and what we might expect on election night. First, welcome to my guest, the co-founder of the Black Resilience Fund and executive director of the nonprofit Brown Hope, Cameron Witten. Cameron, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Straight Talk. Laurel, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Well, congratulations on all of your success with the Black Resilience Fund. What are the latest numbers? How much have you raised as of today? So as of today, thanks to the generous support of thousands of Portlanders, we have raised over $1,650,000 to support our black neighbors. That's fantastic. And I think that's more than 12,000 donors. Did you ever expect this kind of reaction? Honestly, no. Uh, I've been a Black Lives Matter activist since Black Lives Matter. And when I first saw the headlines about George Floyd, I braced myself. I didn't expect much to change. And when I went to Facebook Sunday morning, I said to folks, hey, if you have anything to spare, I wanna help some of our black neighbors. I wanna pay some phone bills, some groceries, uh, pay for a warm meal. I thought maybe we'll raise $5,000 over two days time. In less than 28 days, we built a movement that raised over a million dollars and we have not stopped. We know that we're in the middle of a crisis. We know that black Portlanders face disproportionate burden, both with our public health crisis and the economic shortfall. And so here we are uplifting stories of hope and showing people how their immediate support going to black Portlanders without bureaucracy, without having to check receipts is providing space for people to breathe and live their best lives. And you've had 10,000 applications plus, and you've had to cap that number? Yeah, we had to cap our, the number uh, um, a month ago. And the, the real challenge was that uh, because there is so much need, uh, there were actual agencies that were referring clients to the Black Resilience Fund. And many people didn't know that we were completely volunteer. 
And so uh, we had to make a very tough decision, knowing that if you do the math and you divide 1.5 million by 300, you're only getting 5,000 people. And so we have only half of the dollars that we need to provide $300 to the 10,000 people who've applied so far. And so we are still fundraising because we know the resources are out there. And our goal is to provide every Black Portlander in need some tangible support so that they can live their fullest lives. And let's talk about some of those people that you've helped. Your June impact report highlights Jesse, who was experiencing crushing economic hardship. Jesse said getting the check from the Black Resilience Fund made him feel like he could come up for air. And this is Thala, or Trela. She said the money helped her and her children get housed after months of homelessness. And from the July impact statement, there's Adolf, a senior citizen who was struggling after a car accident. He said the Black Resilience Fund gave him emotional strength, helped him to believe and have hope again. Cameron, those are just a few of the stories. You've said the people you're helping are the forgotten population. How does it make you feel to be helping them and highlighting their stories? What we have seen due to uh, the way our, our media has operated over the years is that when we talk about black communities, very often they are not stories that represent the beautiful diverse experiences of our lives and so the intent of brown hope and the black resilience fund is to show portlanders and people across the world that to be black means to be resilient to be caring and to be loved and so this to us is very powerful to think that even during some of our most challenging times that we can show folks that we are here and we plan to thrive. And if you would like to contribute, as you've heard from Cameron, there's still a great need out there. Here's the website, it's blackresiliencefund.com. And Cameron, you told me this is not an original idea, that it came from the nonprofit that you've referred to, Brown Hope, of which you're the executive director now. And your website says Brown Hope was born from a deep sense of urgency to address how the long history of racism has assailed black, brown, and indigenous people in Portland. What else do you want people to know about Brown Hope? Thank you, Laurel. And so the work of Brown Hope and the Black Resilience Fund is very specific. And we encourage everyone who's listening today to go to their computer or uh, go to some other resource and look up the term historical trauma. All people in our world experience hardship and experience trauma. And the idea of historical trauma is looking at how instances of injustice that have happened within our historical record from genocide to slavery, how the traumatic impacts have created shockwaves that are mental, that are emotional, that are material. These damages, this injury that has passed on from generation to generation. And so many of the public health issues that we see today, whether that is high stress, whether that is uh, PTSD, Many of these things come from the fact that our country has experienced racial injustice after racial injustice, and we have never actually provided interventions so that communities impacted by injustice to heal from the traumatic impacts. Slavery is traumatic, Jim Crow is traumatic, mass incarceration, gentrification, all these things create real trauma in our communities. And so Brown Hope was established for us to create strategies so that communities can heal from the impacts of racism so they can live their fullest lives. 
And we've seen the power of that just in the last three months, during a time when black communities have every right to be mad at the world. Our black communities are facing the dual storms of a global pandemic and headline after headline of black pain. But we've shown with how we are leveraging our resources and over 300 volunteers, many of whom are white Portlanders, that we can create interventions that allow black folks to be seen, embraced by their neighbors, and for them to, as Jesse said, come up for air. Here we are living in the I can't breathe era, and we are literally allowing black Portlanders to come up for air. I find that to be powerful, and it truly speaks to this nation what healing can look like. And let me let folks know if they want to find out more, get involved. The website for Brown Hope is brownhope.org. Let's talk a little bit, Cameron, about your journey to where you are today. And let me give our viewers some background. You have a long history of activism in Portland. That's you me. Were, <laughs> you were once homeless. Cameron was part of the Occupy yeah. Portland movement in 2011. He was arrested four times. In 2012, he ran for mayor. His campaign included wearing a cardboard box and, and nothing else. He came in fifth, losing to Mayor Charlie Hales. Also that year, Cameron waged a 55-day hunger strike in front of City Hall to draw attention to the homeless emergency. And Cameron, now you've received your bachelor's degree in economics from PSU. You're working on your MBA at Willamette University. You're heading up Brown Hope and the Black Resilience Fund. Tell us how your journey led you from being homeless to where you are today. That's a great question, and thank you for showing those pictures because it it's hard for me to believe here is where my life brought me. Uh, but I am somebody who's learned resilience as being a survivor, uh, a survivor of child abuse, of homelessness, of being a young queer black person living in Oregon, with, which has this particular history, and currently living in the last four years that has been, our nation's been led by divisiveness and hatred. And so, every moment I have faced obstacles and pitfalls, but because of the community that is here, uh, the mentors, the uh, allies, uh, really being around a village, every moment I've been able to take these obstacles and transform them into platforms to springboard into the work that I plan to do. And so huge shout out to Portland's uh, Houseless Services Safety Network you know, for two months, when I first came to Portland, every single night, I worried, I dreaded whether I would be turned away from a shelter bed and have nowhere to go. But it was truly because of Portland's generous spirit that I was never turned away from shelter. And so I spent the last 10 years giving back to the same community that was here for me when I needed it the most. And so I know that Portland believes in taking positive action to support our most vulnerable, I've seen it before and I'm seeing it right now. We have so much more to do. In addition to helping our community get through this crisis, we have to be looking at how do we change the systems that have created the inequities that persist today. And, and so wanna, that is hard work, I but I do talk believe- to you about that. Let me talk yes. to you about that because uh, we don't have a lot of time left. And I did as because yeah. you are one of Portland's most visible activists over the years. I did want to get your take on the protests. A, a black individual who spent years here in Portland, you've participated in some of the protests since the killing of George Floyd. Yeah. What do you yeah. see as the way forward in this city, uh, the way to a peaceful yeah. resolution to these protests? 
Thank you for that question. Uh, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for protest. Uh, my first time demonstrating was during the Occupy Portland movement. And it was really that moment where I learned that as a young queer black person, I had a voice, I can make a difference. So many young people and people of all backgrounds are learning that together they can make a change. And we're seeing that happen already systemically throughout our country. And that is because white Americans are more aware than ever of the real inequities and that they can take action and make immediate change. Portland is a unique place. We have a unique protest culture. Anybody who you know, asks or might try to hypothesize about when protests are gonna end in Portland does not understand Portland. We protest, we use our First Amendment, we get civically engaged. But let me, let me ask is, you, Cameron, Yes. I, I want to ask you about this, and maybe you can continue your thought there, because there are a lot yeah. of people right now who are saying what we're seeing now in these destructive yeah. protests, for example, the yeah. fires that were lit inside Mayor Wheeler's condo yeah. building on Monday, where there are people yeah. there occupying yeah. that building, doesn't have much yeah. to do with the Black Lives Matter movement you're talking about anymore. Would you agree with mm -hmm. that? I appreciate that, and it is hard to see so many videos from physical violence against people to damage happening to uh, you know public property uh, to small businesses who've been impacted by the pandemic, and so it hurts my heart to see uh, a lot of damage happening. And we both know that arson, graffiti. Uh, vandalism, these are illegal. And our mayor has a tough job. Our police has a tough job. What is really hard for me is that as a black person, I know every single day, even before COVID, about the livelihoods of black people whose lives were ripped apart. Those experiences of hundreds of people every day facing eviction, uh, facing malpractice within hospitals, of dying postpartum, on, from treatable, preventable reasons. That is happening every single day. And we are never asked to shine a light on that. We are never asked, when is that gonna stop? And so it's really hard. And the moment when we're finally talking about Black Lives Matter, every time that I'm asked to come onto the news, I'm asked, well, what do you think about the property destruction? It's hurtful because lives are at stake. And we can say nothing changed. We didn't create systemic change because the property damage happened. To me, that is morally irresponsible. The only reason why we do not create systemic change is because we refuse to listen to communities most impacted and we refuse to take action. Cameron, and so I, I agree with property damage. The mayor has a hard job, but let's continue to focus on Black Lives Matter. It's a moral responsibility. I appreciate that. I hope we can continue this conversation. Thank you for shedding light on it and giving us your opinion on this. And, and congratulations with the Black Resilience Fund. Again, the website is blackresiliencefund.com. Cameron Witten, thanks for joining us. Coming up here next, what can we expect coming up on election night? When will we know who will win the White House? Reed College professor Paul Gronke joins us with insight into mail-in voting. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We are under 60 days until Election Day, November 3rd. Amid a pandemic, the 2020 election will be unlike any other in recent memory. Many Americans will be voting by mail and absentee ballots. It's second nature to voters in Oregon and Washington, where we've been voting by mail for years. But it's unfamiliar to much of America. 
How safe is it? Here to give us some insight, welcome to my guest, Reed College professor Paul Gronke, who also founded the Early Voting Information Center in 2004. It's a nonpartisan research center. Professor Gronke was also recently selected as a Carnegie Fellow. He received the prestigious award for his scholarship on election security and accessibility. Professor, welcome to Straight Talk. It's nice to have you here. Good to be here, Laurel. Thank you. How would you describe the readiness of this country to conduct a vote by mail election in less than two months? Well, I think uh, election officials nationwide have been working really since January, but you know they've doubled their efforts after the pandemic hit. Um, you know, many states are having to adjust to dramatic increases in vote by mail. We've seen this in many of the spring primaries in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia where the number of citizens who chose to vote by absentee ballot increased 10 times. So a state that typically would be receiving five or 10% of its ballots by mail was receiving half of their ballots by mail. That's been the real challenge is to adjust the systems for these dramatic increases. Here in Oregon, you know, we've been used to this. We've had vote by mail since 2000. And so really in our May primary, not much changed. We, we did things the way we had always done them and, and it really worked quite well. Do you think states are ready to make this adjustment, ready to adapt that fast? I think the adaptation has already occurred. It's a little bit too late now to do much else. So there are a number of states, three or four, I believe, at this point, who they have a law in place that does not allow them to process the absentee ballots until Election Day. Michigan is one prominent example. Uh, in, in Oregon and in most of the vote by mail states, uh, they begin the process, not count, mind you, but process the absentee ballots, the vote by mail ballots prior to election day so they can be counted quickly. Uh, but if you've received millions of vote by mail ballots and it's election day and you haven't even opened them yet, there'll be a delay. So there are a number of states where there's attempts to have legislative action to change those rules and laws. But otherwise, yes, I think most states are ready. There's still some litigation going on about the use of drop boxes. Uh, the Trump campaign, I think, unfortunately, in my opinion, is suing in a number of states to stop the use of drop boxes, which voters really like. Um, I'm hoping that those efforts will be defeated. Um, but yes, I, I think election officials nationwide are prepared um, with some uncertainties about poll workers and in-person voting in November. President Trump in his nomination acceptance speech last week warned about voter fraud with vote by mail. Let's listen to what he said. 80 million mail-in ballots that they're working on, uh, sending them out to people that didn't ask for them. They didn't ask, they just get them. And it's not fair and it's not right. Yeah. What they're doing is using COVID yeah. to right. steal an election. Will you break that down for us? Are there valid concerns there? How much likelihood is there for fraud? Well, that's one of those days where I wake up in the morning and try not to turn on TV for a couple hours. Uh, so that's a misleading uh, information. 80 million, uh, I'm somewhat heartened to see that estimate because that's my estimate. Um, but that 80 million, there are five states which are fully vote by mail, universal ballot delivery. That is Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Utah, and now for the first time this year, Hawaii. 
that in California and in New Jersey and Vermont, they've chosen to do a universal ballot delivery system. However, those states already had very high rates of no excuse absentee balloting. The rest of those ballots that the president is referring to are states where people are requesting their absentee ballots. So it's simply not true to say that 80 million ballots will be sent out to people who have not requested them. That's just false. Uh, and there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud with respect to uh, vote-by-mail ballots. That's also just inaccurate. It's attempt to sow confusion and distrust in the system. I think it's very regrettable at this point that sort of distrust has become a campaign strategy. And we're taping this on Thursday, and the president raised some eyebrows with something that he said, uh, and he tweeted about this. Uh, tell us about this tweet about voting twice. Again, Laurel, I, I didn't turn on my email for a couple hours this morning because I knew that there went my day. So uh, this is illegal. Um, you will be arrested and you will be caught. So uh, you should not vote twice. So what the president is recommending here, oddly, and the attorney general has actually doubled down on this, is that voters in North Carolina uh, go to the polling place, even though they've sent in a vote by mail ballot. Uh, North Carolina has a system in place. The first ballot that is scanned is the one that counts. You cannot vote twice in North Carolina. And I, I really wish the president would not be recommending committing a felony. We've heard from some that vote by mail favors Democratic candidates. Does it favor one party over the other? Uh, we've had some research on this recently. Um, we've known this for many years. Um, in fact, historically, vote by mail, absentee balloting um, has been used more by uh, Republican-leaning voters, but that's because the voters that opt for it tend to be older, um, better educated, uh, more informed, and also people who are traveling, higher incomes, those tend to lean Republican. Um, so, you know, what it really favors, Laurel, is candidates who are better organized, parties that are better organized. Both parties in Oregon and in Washington you know, they've, they've adapted to vote by mail uh, and they like it. I've talked to campaign uh, campaigners, politicians. So it doesn't favor one party or another. It favors the party that's best organized. In a presidential contest, both parties have sufficient resources. My gosh, they have hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's, it's not going to make a difference on partisan grounds. So get us ready for Election Day, November 3rd. What can we expect on Election Night? Will we know the results that night? Well, let's back up a second first, Laurel. Um, the big concern, um, one of our nightmare scenarios is going to be a spike in COVID in some states prior to election day that might require some last minute consolidation of polling places or closing of precincts. And that could be very problematic and hopefully that won't happen. Hopefully election officials in other states are prepared for that. Now let's fast forward to election night. The concerns on election night are that some of these states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, for example, will have gotten so many vote by mail ballots that they won't have processed them yet. So we'll have early returns that won't be complete. And then we'll begin to process those additional ballots over the next couple of days and the, and the totals will change. And so the worry is that uh, victory will be claimed by one or the other candidate and that victory speech or victory claim will be based on incomplete results. Then when the results change, there'll be claims of malfeasance. Really, it's not malfeasance at all. The, the folks who vote by mail absentee are different than the election day voters. And we, we need to wait, we need to calm down a couple of days. Folks like you in the media, other you know leading voices have already tried to warn that it's unlikely at 8 p.m. on election night, we're gonna have final results. We need to sit back, calm down, You know, just wait a few days if we can. So we need to be patient. Uh, we only have about a, a minute left, but I did wanna ask you because 
Oregon had free postage in the last primary for ballots. Did it make a difference in the turnout, what people did? It made a slight difference. So uh, typically we've had 60% of the voters return their ballots using drop boxes. That number went down to 50%. I think the expectation was it might be more. Um, you and I talked about this the other day. I know that you mailed your ballot in. You thought it was great, free stamp. I, of course, walked my ballot to the library because I like to exercise. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> people get habituated. I think eventually these will begin to change. Um, so it, it did, it, 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 we don't know the turnout effects until November, um, but it's a bit surprising that not more people are using the U.S. Postal Service. And, you know, Laura, we're really gonna find out in November when we have that typical Oregon 80% turnout, how many people use the Postal Service and how many people continue to do the old fashioned way, drop boxes. I know, I thought I loved having the free stamp. We only have a few seconds, but is it good to try to get your ballot in early this year? It is, though. Uh, remember, we do have drop boxes. Uh, public libraries in Oregon are also adapted for drop boxes. So if you do want to wait, you can use a drop box or deliver it to your county office. Otherwise, mail it in four or five days ahead of time. Professor Gronke, thank you for joining us here on Stray Talk. Thank you all. And we thank you for watching and listening. Remember to download our podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for KGW Stray Talk. We'll see you next week for Stray Talk. Have a safe and wonderful Labor Day weekend.